Hello, this is Ashley Chase welcoming you to the Mark Driscoll Podcast. For more content from my dad, Pastor Mark, Senior Pastor here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, visit realfaith.com, where you'll find study guides to go along with each sermon series as he preaches verse by verse through books of the Bible, daily devotions, free ebooks, and more. Now grab your Bibles and get ready for today's sermon. All right, super excited. We are in a great book of the Bible called Genesis. It's at the very beginning of your Bible. We're in chapter two. And the story of the Bible opened in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Massive, global, cosmic perspective. This week, the camera focuses on our first parents, Adam and Eve, and the first marriage and wedding in the history of the world. It becomes a close-up shot. And of course, Jesus is the most famous person in the Bible, but I think probably Adam and Eve would be in the second position. And as we look at Adam and Eve, there is a question, were they real, actual, historical people? Different people will come to different conclusions. I'm gonna teach it as if they were real, actual, historical people. And in Genesis 1 through 5, here's what we see. Adam is single. That's not good. Then he gets married. Then him and his wife sin. And then they have kids and they have grandkids and then they die. That's as normal as anyone could possibly. Their life is just like ours. So we're going to take them as just normal, regular people. And you may have some more questions. I'm going to move very quickly through the text today. And just uh, three helps. There's a study guide and also a theological textbook called Doctrine. You can find them for free at realfaith.com. Just click on the store, goes deeper, answers all your questions. It's free. You get what you pay for, lower your expectations, but I'm trying to help. And what we find really interesting is that as we look at Adam and Eve, the Bible says that we all come from one man and one woman and genetic studies have now come to the same conclusion. The point is this, follow the truth and eventually you end up with the Lord. And there was a book that was released not long ago. It's getting a bit of buzz in the academic world. It's called The Genealogical Adam and Eve, The Surprising Science of Universal Ancestry. And as we are studying and mapping the human genome and now we're looking at human genetics and they're tracing our family ancestry and history, they came to this crazy conclusion. We all started with one man and one woman. That's where we all started. They call them mitochondrial Adam and Eve. We will call them Adam and Eve. Uh, and, so, and so we're gonna look first at how God made the world, prepared it for human life, and then we're going to ask why we are here on this planet. So in a moment, we're gonna look at God preparing the planet or the promised land in particular as part of that planet for human life. And I'm gonna move quickly, but just for context, the reason why God is saying in such detail where this place is and what awaits them is because because we now know this as the nation of Israel. It's the land that God set aside for the ancestors of Abraham. Furthermore, the people who are receiving the book of Genesis, they have been away from this land for more than 400 years. They were in the nation of Egypt and then they were held as slaves and then they were liberated by God. And now they're in the middle of the woods trying to find their way home. And the question is, why keep going? God says, here's what it's like, it's going to be worth it. In the same way that God tells us about heaven, 
And here we are wandering around in the wilderness of human history. And the question is, why keep going? God tells us what heaven will be like so that we persevere until we arrive there. He tells them what the promised land will be like so that they would persevere until they arrive there. That being said, let's just get going. Genesis 2, four through 14, God created us to live physically and spiritually. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. That's everything that God made when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There wouldn't be any rain until the days of Noah and a flood. And we'll get there in a few weeks. And there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, that's his body, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that is his soul, and the man became a living creature, body and soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up, here's provision and environment and nutrition, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life, and so we're dependent beings. The tree of life that we need to partake of to live was in the midst of the garden. And then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which leads to death. So we have a choice of life and death. A river flowed out of Eden. So he's gonna give us the parameters, the, uh, the, the location of the promised land, because they're trying to find it. And it divided and became four rivers. The first was the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. What he says is keep going, it's gonna be worth it. The name of the second river is the Gihon. We're now getting the property boundaries. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And then the two, we still know where they are today. Uh, the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. I just wanna focus on one big idea here, and this that God made you one person, two parts, body and soul. And this is hugely important because if you don't understand how God made you, you don't know how to live. And you are one person, two parts, a physical body made by the dust of the earth and a spiritual soul made by the breath of God. And you were made to correlate to the reality, and that is that there is one reality in two realms. There is the unseen spirit realm, and there is the seen physical realm. There is the reality of God and angels and demons, and also your soul that is unseen. And then there is the physical world that we live in, and these two worlds impact and affect and interact with one another. Now, that being said, we tend to know a lot more about our body than our soul. Most people have a far more detailed plan for their physical well-being, exercise, hydration, sleep, nutrition. Most people don't really understand their soul or what to do with their soul. And let me say this, you don't just have a soul, you are a soul. And your soul will exist even when your body dies. And so even when you die and your body goes into the dust of the earth, your soul will go into the presence of the Lord if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ until your body and soul are reunited at the resurrection and or the second coming of Jesus. And why I tell you this is you need to have a plan for your soul. This is why God gives us Sabbath so that we can rest not just body, but soul. This is why God gives us prayer so we can unburden our soul and we can connect with God. This is why God gives us the Holy Holy Spirit so we can live by the supernatural power of God in the innermost being of our existence. This is why we sing and we worship. Your soul needs it. 
Your soul needs it. And when we treat people or we seek to help people who are struggling, we need to address them, not just body, but also soul. And so uh, what's interesting, there is something that is known as the Mental Health Bible. It is technically called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And this is what clinicians, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists will use when treating people that have emotional trauma or addictions or psychological difficulties. And what's really curious is it's how to help everyone with all of their problems. Your Bible mentions your soul hundreds of times. The Bible for mental health disorders mentions the soul zero times. And the question is, how can we help people unless we address the whole person? See, this is where I do believe in science and I do believe in medicine and and I'm grateful for all of that. But in addition, we need prayer. We need the Holy Spirit. We need inner healing. We need the word of God. We need worship. And at the end of the day, you can't be healthy unless you have connected with God at the level of the soul and cared for your body at the level of the physical. And God makes us body and soul and he places us in Eden, in a garden, particularly that is in the midst of the region that he denotes as Eden. We now know it as the promised land or the nation of Israel. Now that being said, this place is not just a place, it is a realm. It's the connecting point between the unseen and the seen, between the spiritual and the physical, between heaven and earth. And so you're gonna see next week, uh, when we get into Genesis three, that God walks with his people there, that Satan shows up there as well, and there's an angel. This is the connecting point between heaven and earth. And so that realm right now is in the presence of God and it will return with the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the point is simply this, it's important to denote that there are times that the realms reunite. You're gonna see this in Genesis three. You're gonna see this uh, coming up with a guy named Jacob where a ladder opens and heaven comes down to meet with him and the realms come together. The point is this, there's a lot more going on in our world than we see that the, the, the battles that we face, sometimes they're not just physical, they're also spiritual. And sometimes the things that we're struggling with can't just be dealt with in the natural, they have to be dealt with in the supernatural. And so he's opening for us a broad perspective of one reality, two realms, and how you are built and created, handcrafted by God to be both a physical and a spiritual being. And then he depicts for us not only how we were made, but why we were made. The question is, why are we here? And then Genesis begins to answer those questions, starting in Genesis chapter two, verses 15 through 17, where we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? Work. People are, just tell America this, go to work. You can't get anybody to work. Work is pre-fall, work is good. Work keeps us out of trouble and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, he's supposed to be under authority and a revelation receiver saying, you may surely eat of how many trees? Every tree in the garden, but one exception, right? All yes, one no, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And here's why, for in the day that you eat of it, you will die, you will die. So ultimately here, Adam is to work and he's put in the garden and God says, you need to go to work. This is before sin enters the world. Once sin enters the world next week, work is cursed. We rebel against God 
And then that which is under our dominion treats us the way we treat him and it rebels against us. So as we work, it is now toil and it is frustrating and it never quite happens the way we were hoping. Always something goes wrong and breaks. We now see that with the supply chain and the universe, it's one big mess, okay? But it wasn't that way in the beginning. And in addition, God here is speaking to Adam, giving him meaningful, valuable, purposeful work to do. Somebody say this, your job is part of your relationship with God. And furthermore, Adam here is like Jesus. He's perfect, he's not sinned and he has a job to do. Similarly, when the Lord Jesus comes to the earth, he spends the first 90% of his life working a job as a carpenter and work is good and it's meaningful and it's valuable and it's purposeful. And God already said just previously to fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, to exercise dominion and to subdue lower creation. What that means is God has put in this planet all of these resources that need to be harvested and maximized. And this is something called the cultural mandate where we make culture, we build cities, we create businesses, we develop land. Those who don't know God would say, don't touch anything on the planet, just leave it in its original state. And God says, no, actually dominion, subjugation, multiplication, creativity, and work. We need to be good stewards of the planet, but we ultimately need to harness all of its potential because what matters to God is human life and flourishing. In addition, Adam is made to worship. And so a priest would be put in a temple and here Adam is like a priest and the garden is like the temple and there he is to worship God. And he does this or he should do this by obeying the commands of God. And the point is this, that our God has authority and he tells us what to do. And in obeying him, that is one way in fact of worshiping him. And what happens is this, people come to the word of God and we hear what God forbids and commands. And it is hard sometimes to submit yourself to someone unless you're convinced that they care about you. Right? This, if somebody just comes up and starts telling you what to do, the first thing you should ask is, um, do you care about me? Right. Do you have authority over me? And do you have affection for me? If you don't have authority over me or affection toward me, I'm not listening to you. And so it's not just that we need to know the laws of God, we need to know the heart of God behind the laws. And the point is this, God is a gracious God. It tells us 80 times in Genesis that he likes to bless. And it says here that he says yes to everything and he only says no to one thing. I, I use the language of green light versus red light dad. And I see God the father here like a dad. How many of you grew up in a home? And if you're here with your parents, don't raise your hand, but you grew up in a home where pretty much they always said no. It was just always red light, no, 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 no. It was always no. How many of you, you're like, okay. What that does to a child, number one, they just stop asking and what they do start is rebelling. I'm not even gonna ask because you just say no. So I'm going to either openly rebel or I'm gonna sneakily rebel, meaning catch me if you can. The point is this, God likes to say yes and his predisposition is toward the green, not the red light. You need to know that when God says no, it's because he loves you and he's trying to protect you. So here what God says is, everything is yes, one thing is no, and here's why. You will die. Now for Adam, this should be compelling. Oh, well that makes sense. 
And what happens, there's a parenting lesson here, and that is we should be predisposed towards saying yes. There are times that we need to say no. And when we say no, we need to explain why, because we don't want them just to obey. We want them to be discipled and to learn to make their own decisions. And so the goal is not just to tell children what to do, but why, so that eventually they can make their own decisions. So I'll give you an example in my life. When my kids were growing up, uh, I've got five kids, and I, I'm a green light dad. I say yes most of the time. If I say no, my kids look at me like, are you sure? Because they're used to me saying yes, because I want to bless them. Now, the good news is I have, we have great kids uh, because Grace is their mom. And so, they, uh, and so they tend to just ask for good things. And when they ask for something, my, my disposition is yes. And every once in a while I say no, and then I explain why. And so my kids have really sort of field tested this. I'll give you an example some years ago. Our youngest daughter, who I adore, I looked at her, I said, is there anything in your heart you want to do with your dad? Anything you'd like me to get you? You know, how could I bless you? And I thought, ice cream, hug, walk. She said, no, I want to go to Alaska. And then I want to eat crab legs and I want to eat halibut. And then I want to rent a float plane. And then I want to land on a glacier. And I want to wear a promise ring that you bought me. And I want to do a cartwheel on the glacier. I was like, you've been thinking about this. This is, this is quite a thing here. So guess what the answer is? Yes, that's what we're doing. Because I want to say yes. So we go to Alaska, we make memories, we have fun. I get her a promise ring, we land on the glacier. She does a cartwheel and loses her promise ring. (laughs) So she looks at me and she says, I lost my promise ring. Dad, can I have another promise ring? Answer, yes. (laughs) Yes, because ultimately this is me communicating to young men and I'm willing to invest in this twice. So, uh, okay, but but the point is this, you don't need to rebel against a parent who wants to bless you. And so ultimately, God is a God, he's a father who likes to bless. And again, when he says no, he explains why. And let me say, you can embitter or frustrate your children if all you do is say no. And if you say no and you don't explain why, they're gonna think that you're against them, not for them, and that the rules are to protect and preserve them. They don't necessarily assume or know that. So God made us not only to work and to worship, but also for relationship with himself and others. Genesis 2, 18 through 23. Then the Lord God said, so God's gonna speak, it is not good that the man should be alone. Okay, so Adam here is single. God looks at him and what he says is, that's not good. Have you ever seen a single man? So you understand what this looks like. Okay, good. <laughs> I just, and all the single guys are offended. They're like, okay, hey, I'm offended. Let me just say this. If you have a black leather couch and you're good at video games, that's not good, okay? That's not good. So God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. So he's gonna get a wife. Notice the order, single men. He knew God, he had a job, and then he got a girl. Notice the order. Yay! God, job, girl. A lot of guys are like, hey, she likes my car. No, she doesn't. She doesn't care. She, she wants to hear you say, I have a Bible and a job. That's very sexy. Okay, so now, <laughs> it's gonna get worse. Now out of the ground, 
The Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Adam is distinct from the animals and he has dominion. There's no half animal, half man partially evolved. There's clear delineation and distinction. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Then the man gave uh, names to all the livestock, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field. So just this is kind of funny to me. So God's a father, he looks at him, he's like, son, you're gonna get a mate. Awesome, okay. But first, you're gonna need to name some animals. And then she's gonna be at the end of the parade. And so Adam, here come, here come, here come. Oh, he's like, Father, please tell me that's not her. <laughs> no, that's not her, okay. Aardvark, names it, next, next. Oh, dad, please, please, please. No, that's not her. Okay, goat. <sighs> he's doing this all day. And what he's doing, he is having to patiently wait for his wife. Let me say, men, you're, if you're gonna get a girl, you're gonna be waiting, okay? You're gonna be waiting, they're gonna be late. <laughs> but they're gonna be worth it. Now I learned this lesson the hard way. So Grace, she's not here, she'll be here later. Grace is always late, okay? So um, I'm always early, because I'm filled with the spirit like Jesus. And Grace <laughs> is always late. No, she's, but here's the deal. Our first date, she was late. I sat, I sat there with her parents and she was late. She came out and I was like, that was worth waiting for. Okay, so, and then we got married and I forgot that and I got frustrated and we have five kids. So I put the kids in the car and I'd be waiting for Grace. And then Grace would come into the car and there was one day I'm waiting for Grace in the car with the five kids. It's running, we're ready to go, we're running late and I'm frustrated. So I speak under my breath. I'm like, gosh, she's always late. I hear a little voice, back seat cute little adorable youngest daughter says, but isn't your beautiful wife worth waiting for? I said, no. So no, I said, I said, I said, yes. I would rather wait for your mom than not wait and be with anyone else. Uh, okay, so I, I, I fixed it, good. So, um, but the point is this, sometimes God makes a man wait so that he really appreciates the woman, okay? And here Adam is waiting for his wife and he is naming these other animals. So uh, the scriptures continue, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. So let me just say this, women are late, men take naps. I'm just telling you, this is God's divine design. Cause it says right here, how many of you have a husband who takes naps? Okay, and he's varsity if he naps in his chair. That's next level right there, okay? So who caused the man to fall into a deep sleep? The Lord, uh, this was the Lord's plan. So let me just tell you this. Women are late, men take naps. This is how God made marriage, okay? It's how it's gonna be, it's how it's gonna be. Uh, the men seem very excited, the women seem very unconvinced. Okay, uh, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, the man, uh, God took one of his ribs, clothed up, closed up that place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Man sees her and said, this is at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, because she was taken out of man. So here, Adam has a relationship with God and then with Eve. At this point, is Adam in a perfect relationship with God, yes or no? Yes, yes. perfect relationship with God. God's perfect, Adam's perfect, relationship is perfect. And there's still something missing. 
Up until this point, everything God made, he said, was good. Here's the first thing in human history that God says is not good. It's not good for a man to be alone. You can have a perfect relationship with God and you're not complete unless you have a relationship with others. And he particularly denotes this with marriage. And so the way this works is that God has already revealed himself as a relational community. He said, let us, plural, make man or mankind in our plural image and likeness. And so ultimately God reveals himself as a relational God. In Genesis 1, the Father spoke, the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. And we know from John 1 that Jesus was the Word of God, present, the powerful force, bringing creation into existence from nothing. So the point is simply this, Adam is made to mirror, image God, reflect God. He can't do that if he has God above him, creation beneath him, but doesn't have an equal or a peer alongside of him. The point is this, you were made not just for a relationship with God, but we were made for a relationship with each other. Amen. And what we, it was crazy the last two years, we tried this global experiment of isolation. Everybody just go home and be alone. And then all the professionals come out and they say, we've decided it's not good. <laughs> well, yeah, I could have told you that. I read it in this book that was written three and a half thousand years ago and told us it was not good to be alone. So we isolate everybody. And then we wonder why they're not doing well. This is why church needs to be open. This is why life needs to be open. This is why relationships need to be a priority because otherwise you're alive, but you're not living. Amen. And God said, it's not good to be alone. And so what Adam has here, he has dominion and distinction over animals and lower creation. He has dominion, they come to him and obey him and he names them and he has distinction. Macroevolution would say that we had this transition from uh, animals to people and the Bible says, no, there's people they have dominion from and distinction from animals. And so here's Eve, here comes Eve, first woman, first female, and we're back to our binary fixed unchanging gender categories, male and female. I know it's crazy. It's crazy. And some of you are like, I'm not sure. Then you went to college and you got confused. You got confused. And we live in this world that denies sex, gender, marriage, binary, male, female. God's very clear on this. This is his divine design. I even got kicked off of TikTok this week for hate speech. And, and my thought, and they said, you violated our standards. What I thought was funny is they think they have standards. I thought that was adorable. <laughs> and then, and, and what I said was men should be in men's sports and women should be in women's sports. They're like, hate speech. I was like, well, okay, you know, crazy, crazy. We still have fixed binary gender categories. I have a beard and an Adam's apple. Wow. I'm not a girl, okay? And Grace is different than me. And I'm so excited about that. <laughs> and so what we see here with Adam and Eve is three things. Number one, they are equal. They're equal. They're both made in the image and likes of God. So men and women are equal. Now, what chauvinism said was the men should be out front and the women should just sort of trail behind. Feminism comes along and says, no, we've had enough of that. Put the women out front, let the men trail behind. The Bible says, let them be side by side. Amen. Right? The woman comes from the side, that's where she belongs. So I, I love it. When I sit in the car with Grace, I hold her hand. When we worship together, I hold her hand because we're side by side. We do everything together. And when she snuggles with me, and I like that, She'll burrow in. How many of you ladies like to burrow into your husband? What I tell her is, welcome home. 
That's where she comes from. That's where she belongs. That's where she fits. And so ultimately Adam and Eve are equal, but are they different? Yes. yes, they're different. In the same way, my hands have some similarity, but they are different. And one hand is good at one thing and another hand is good at another. And they work together and they're better together and they complement one another. This is like a husband and a wife. This is like a man and a woman. Grace and I are different. She's different than me, but we're better together. And I know it's not good to be alone. And so it means that I need my wife. In addition, I need my God, but I need my wife. And so the Bible says that she is made as a helper. And again, some people hear this like, that's very offensive. And isn't it weird? We live in a day when everybody's trying to get offended. Just walking around like, I'm looking to be offended. Well, I'm here to help. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> First of all, it means that the man needs help. That's sort of a negative statement toward the guy. God looks at me, he's like, yeah, that's not gonna work. You know, that, that's, that's not gonna work. In addition, God refers to himself as our helper repeatedly in scripture. The Bible says over and over in Psalms, the Lord is my helper. Well, if the Lord helps me, that doesn't mean he's less than me. In addition, Jesus says that when he leaves in John's gospel and he returns to heaven, he would send another, the Holy Spirit, to be our helper. So God looks at me, he's like, you need the Holy Spirit and grace. Okay, I do. How many of you are married, ladies, and you know that if you weren't there, your husband wouldn't be better? <laughs> True? We, we are better together. I need grace. So any man who looks at his wife and says, I don't need you, he's calling God a liar because God says it's not good to be alone. And so ultimately we were made to have a relationship with God, relationship with one another. And it says that everything is good, but it's not good for the man to be alone, even though sin has not yet entered the world, but it is good to find your spouse and get married. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor or blessing from the Lord. Well, here is the first wedding. Let me say this, God made us male and female and God made marriage. This is before government. And we live in a day when everybody's like, oh, I don't know if marriage should be one man and one woman. So we've lost God's truth. And I'm telling you what's next is polygamy, okay? Because it's like, well, if we've gotten rid of male and female, why do we get rid of two? Why, why are we so stuck on two people in marriage? And you're gonna see this as we get into Genesis. There are people who are polygamous and they are believers. And let me say this, it never ends well. It, 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 there's, there's nothing but just drama and trauma in a family when you have a couple of wives and a bunch of kids. My, I would just tell you, two wives is too many. Um, <laughs> And so ultimately, if we can't keep the firewall that God made, marriage is one man, one woman, we've already gotten rid of the male and the female, I'm telling you, we're gonna get rid of the one and the one. And I don't expect people who don't know God to understand, but God's people must understand that he created marriage. And here's the first wedding. So first of all, Adam is there and he's waiting for his wife. Now, Eve is going to her wedding. Ladies, has she had a big day? Okay, what, what has her day been so far? I got created. <laughs> okay, I met God. God said, you're gonna get married. She's like, what is a marriage? 
Oh, it's a covenant with a man. What is a man? She's got a lot going on. How many of you ladies would like a little more prep time for your wedding? Let me say this, men. Women start preparing for their wedding in their crib. That's when they start. They, they are. Right now, there's a beautiful six-month-old little girl somewhere in a crib, and she's planning her wedding, and she's trying to figure out how the dresses for the bridesmaids could be unattractive, okay? She's trying to figure it so that she glows. And it's just, there's this whole architecting that comes in. It, I know it's true. Because uh, I've watched a show, Say Yes to the... Some of you are like, Pastor Mark, why? Not because I need a dress. Again, I told you, male and female, I'm sticking in my lane. But my daughter, my youngest daughter, she loves the show, Say Yes to the Dress. I don't know why it's so popular. It's so predictable. A bunch of females go in, they all sit down. One woman goes in, tries on a dress, tries on another dress, comes out, and we're like, no, 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 no. Ah! Tears, angel choir, string section, millions of dollars spent. It all comes together in a moment. And then they look at the bride and they ask her, do you say yes to the dress? What's funny is she doesn't seem excited about the guy, but the dress, she's pretty fired up about the dress. <laughs> and then she's like, yes, and then everybody cries. I've watched Pray for me. I've watched so many episodes of this show with my daughter because I love her and I don't understand. Now, ladies, let me say this. It's Eve's wedding dray. What's her wedding dress? All the dudes are like, I like where this is going. <laughs> Naked wedding day. That's a lot, right? So she's had a big day. So she's gonna go meet Adam. So here's the point. Adam has to nail this. He cannot mess this up. Because if he messes it up, what's his backup plan? Aardvark, go. We're back to the lineup. There's one woman. You gotta make this work. And so ultimately, let me say this. God doesn't give us a standard of beauty. God gives us a spouse as our standard of beauty. When Adam and Eve come together, there's one man, there's one woman. Her standard of beauty is her husband. His standard of beauty is his wife. There's no one else to compare them to. That's how we are supposed to be. It says in the New Testament that men should be one woman men. That started with Adam. There was only one woman. But us men, we need to have that same devotion and commitment to our bride that she's the only woman. She's the only one. And a lot of people ask, well, how do I know I married the right one? Answer, if you married them, they're the right one. Okay, that's how we know. So God brings Adam and Eve together. Adam is going to meet Eve and she's going to want to marry him if he responds appropriately. And what he does, he sings to her. In the Hebrew, this is originally a rhythmic poem, a song. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman for she was taken from him. How many of you ladies, if you met your guy and he just burst into song over you. Okay. This is why the guy with the guitar always has a strategic advantage. That guy's always got an advantage. You're like, I got a job. She's like, he's got a guitar. It's just a thing. And so, but he's a creative and he's a poet and he's an artist. And when he sees her, he just creates beauty and poetry because that's how he sees her. Now, this is before sin enters the world. These are the first recorded words of any human being in history. 
And at this point, the animals obey him and he only sings, he does not speak. The point is, the world may have been like a Disney musical <laughs> until sin entered the world and the animals rebelled and we started talking. It's just that beautiful. And so the first human emotion is joy and the first nickname is positive. He calls her woman, that's a, that's a nickname. We have nicknames for the people we love and hate the most. And you need to have for your beloved, for your spouse, a nickname that is sweet and tender, no negative nicknames. He looks at her, he sings over her and he blesses her. See, God blessed him and then he blessed her and God blessed them. The blessing needs to flow down. Now, what's interesting here is at this point, we've been looking at narrative and now Moses stops and he comments and he sets up for us the pattern precedent and prototype for marriage. And the book here swings open and the rest of the book is a generational, multi-generational study of family dynamics. So the rest of Genesis, we're gonna be in it until um, Labor Day next September, and it's looking at, okay, what happens if you put your marriage together this way? What happens if you put your sex life together this way? What happens if you raise your children this way? What happens in future generations? Many of us, the pains, problems, and perils that we endure were decisions that were made long before we were born. And so ultimately God wants to bless, but Satan wants to curse. And one generation makes decisions that either cause blessing or cursing on future generations. So as we get into the rest of Genesis, just so you know, I'm gonna meddle in your marriage, meddle in your sex life, meddle in your parenting, meddle in your grandparenting. Uh, it's gonna be a little bit painful. You're welcome. I'm just telling you where we're going. And here Moses stops and he comments and Jesus twice, I think it's Matthew 19 and Mark 10. And Paul wants in Ephesians 5.31, the section on marriage, they quote this very verse from Genesis. Jesus and Paul go back and they say, this is how marriage is supposed to be by God's divine design. And that is that he created us for marriage and family, Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore, a... Man, marriage is for men, it's not for boys. What oftentimes happens is a woman meets a guy and she moves him into her house. She puts him on her payroll. He eats her food and she thinks that's cute until she has kids and she needs a man and not a son. Marriage is for men, not for boys. And just because you have a beard doesn't mean you're a man. You may just be a boy who can shave, okay? Therefore, all the moms are excited and all the single guys are covering their girlfriend's ears. Okay, that's where we are. Therefore, a man shall what? Leave his father and mother. We have a whole generation that is told to have adolescence. This is a step that we have created between being a child and being an adult. We now call it your 20s. It's for dating, relating, and fornicating. It's for wasting time. It's for sitting home and just being indifferent about ambition and then voting for socialists to do what your mom did and that's to pick up the mess that you've made of your life. It's a global problem. It's particularly a national crisis. 
And so ultimately, if you're a young man, let me tell you this, just get up, put your pants on, go to work, read your Bible, try, and you will have a decade head start on all the other guys. Yeah. Decade head start. shall leave his father and his mother. And let me say this, usually it's a little easier to leave your father than your mother. <laughs> oh, we'll talk about that. I felt the, felt the air conditioning kick on, got a little chilly there all of a sudden. Because oftentimes the mother has a hard time letting the son grow up. She keeps mothering him. And if you keep mothering him, you will be smothering him. Your goal is not to take care of your little boy. Your goal is to get him to no longer be a little boy, Amen. okay? And so if your mom is still, hey, did you get a job? Did you pay your DUI? Um, you know, <laughs> do, do you need more beer in your sippy cup? If you're there, it's time to pivot. It's time to pivot, okay? So we'll continue. Uh, his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. We've inverted this. Sleep together, maybe live together and still spend your parents' money. We wonder why marriage and family doesn't work. We wonder why families aren't blessed. We wonder why children are broken, brought into brokenness. It's because we've disobeyed God. And the man and his wife were both what? Does it feel weird to read that in church? <laughs> Okay, well then we'll do it. Okay, and the man and his wife were both naked. If you're in Texas, it's naked. And they were not ashamed. And what we have here is marriage is a man and a woman, and marriage is two things. It's a covenant that is consummated. Here they covenant before God and they consummate together. That's a marriage. And we know that this was written for us, not for Adam and Eve, because it says to leave your mother and father and they didn't have a mother and a father or a belly button. Like this is not for them. Adam's like, leave your father. I gotta find my father. He doesn't have, a... so this is written for us, not for them. And this is timeless, so it's always timely. And there's a fourfold process here that Pastor Jimmy Evans writes about in his book called The Four Laws of Love. He's one of our pastors, one of our overseers, and it's a really great book. If you wanna read a good marriage book, The Four Laws of Love. But the laws of, the four laws are the law of priority, the law of pursuit, the law of partnership, the law of purity. Let me go through them quickly. Number one, law of priority. A man shall leave his mother and father. What that means is that ultimately and firstly, his priorities shift. When you're growing up, your relational priority should be, if you're a single person, young person, God and my family. And then you leave and your priority is God and your spouse. Now, let me say this. Oftentimes the family doesn't want your marriage to be your priority. So they keep trying to suck you back into their drama. Well, what about your family? No, we are a family. You are now my extended family. Now, I taught Genesis 17 years ago, I was 34. We only had four of our five kids, the oldest was seven. Now I'm 51, I see it a little differently. Now I have two grown married children, True, two grown married children. And they've made the full step of launching. I have a child in college, that's a half step. You live with your parents part-time, you live on campus part-time, you work part-time until you graduate and then you work full-time. And that's totally fine and good. It's a half step in the right direction. But that being said, I said this to my kids when they got married. I said, number one, um, you to the 
spouse they were marrying are not joining my family. And I tell my kids, you are not joining their family. The two of you are starting a new family, your own family. Now, for parents of adult children like me, look at the impossible situation we put our kids in. If both sides of the family think that this couple is joining their family, they are torn between the two. Thanksgiving is horrible, Christmas is painful. Now add to it, let's say there's divorce and remarriage. Okay, now I'm part of four families, five families. How are we supposed to have a healthy marriage when we're part of five families? We are a new family. And what happens is this new family, they get to leave their mother and father. The previous family becomes extended family. Now they get to decide what they wanna do. What do you wanna do for Christmas? What do you wanna do for Thanksgiving? How many kids do you wanna have? Where do you wanna go to church? What do you wanna buy for a house? Where do you wanna live? What do you wanna do? What do you wanna do with your family? What is God saying to you and your family? This is the lie of priority, it shifts. And so first and foremost, it means that a man needs to differentiate himself from his family. And part of that is just moving out. And it's geographic independence, I've moved out. It's financial independence, I'm paying my own bills. And it's making your own decisions without your parents sort of looking after you as a little boy. Because until you are a man who's ready to take care of himself, how in the world are you gonna love your wife? And when you have kids, how are you gonna take care of them? See, we have a whole generation where the men act like boys and the women and children pay a deep, profound, painful price. And so within this, now we have in our family, our extended family, we have three families. And so I can't just look at them and tell them what to do. I need to talk with them. Hey, let's pray. What do you guys want? What do you want? See if we can find something that works for all three families. But ultimately you gotta make decisions that are best for your family. And sometimes the reason that we don't allow this is because ultimately the parents don't want the child to leave. And there are two ways that we err in parenting adult children. Number one, we underparent. This happens all the time. People are like, oh, they're 18. Good luck. Like, well, have you met an 18 year old? They're not fully cooked, right? They're, <laughs> Furthermore, they're about to make the biggest decisions of their whole life, decisions they've never made. That's like looking at a kid at 16 and be like, oh, good luck driving, there's a freeway. You know, like, no, you gotta give them a little driver's ed. You gotta, you gotta walk with them, you gotta help them. You gotta coach them and disciple them. And so ultimately, if you just sort of hand the keys over to the 18 year old, they're going to get in a lot of trouble. They've never picked a career. They've never bought a house. They've never been married. They never raised a kid. And so what happens is you go into the position of discipleship and relationship. How can I pray for you? How can I help you? How can I bless you? And hopefully you live in such a way that they say, hey, dad, mom, or mom and dad, you, you love the Lord, you have wisdom. Can you be wise counsel? Can I run some stuff by you? They invite you in rather than you shoving yourself in. The other way that we err in our parenting is not underparenting, it's overparenting. And sometimes it's really hard for parents, but especially for moms like, but that's my little boy. It's like, he's six foot tall. His voice is as deep as his dad's and he doesn't see himself on a trike. Now that's how you see him, but that's not how he sees himself. And at the end of the day, when the children are trying to leave and launch, the, this would be, this would be, this would be rough, be honest with you. 
Sometimes the reason we don't want our children to leave is because we don't have a marriage that's sufficient. You're like, you know what, if it's just us, I can't do that, that's not gonna be good. So we need to keep the kids because the kids are the thing that keep us together. Grace and I are at the age, 51, as we're seeing friends of ours, their kids launch, we're seeing their marriages implode. You know why? It wasn't the marriage, it was the children that were the bedrock of the relationship. When I tell my kids this all the time is, your mom and I were a family before we had you. And after you leave, we love you. And I love being a dad. I love being a dad with all my heart. And I love having my kids under roof. But two have moved out, one's in college. A few more years, we're gonna have an empty nest. And guess what? I still have grace. And what I tell the kids is, I'm be I was fine before you got here, I'll be fine after you're gone. Pray for your mom though. <laughs> you know, so she's, she's gotta be with me. Because the bedrock of the family is the relationship with God and the spouse and you add the children to it. If the children are the bedrock of the family, it's only a matter of time before it crumbles. This is why sometimes you can't let your kids grow up. And or if they do grow up, you start pressuring them. Give us grandkids right away. Because the only way this works is if we add some little people. Children are a blessing, they should never be an idol. Grandchildren are a blessing, they should never be an idol. We had the most horrific season of our life some years ago. Just felt like everything was shaking and crumbling. And I met individually with each of our five children. And I was like, you know, be permission to speak freely. How are you doing? They said, well, it's hard season. They said, but we're not worried about it. We know it's gonna be fine. Kids were little. I said, why is that? Every one of the five kids gave the same answer. You and mom always stick together with the Lord. So we're gonna be okay. The law of priority is if your family is like, well, what about us? What about us? What about us? Then I'm telling you this, there's something wrong with them. The family instead should be saying, grow up, launch, get married, chase your dreams, find God's will for your life. We're not here to be the ceiling that restricts you. We're here to be the pad that launches you. And at the end of the day, the way some parents do this is control mechanisms, it's guilt, it's manipulation, it's codependency, and sometimes it is financial control. Okay, I'll pay for your college if you go to the college I want you to go to, you study the major I want you to study, and you live at home. Lots of strings attached. I'll help you buy a home if you buy a home in the city that I want and you have an extra room so that I could come and stay with you. I'm getting the death stare. <laughs> and the point is like, well, you need to be invited into their home. You can't just manipulate your way into their home. And maybe they don't want you in their home. And ultimately you don't even need to know why. What I tell my kids all the time is this, when they grow up, I will support whatever decision you make as long as it's not ungodly. If it's ungodly, I can't support it. But you don't have to, I don't have to agree with you. You get to make your own decisions. And so what happens is when a child is little, true or false, you can kind of control them. Put them in a car seat, put them in a bassinet, wrap them up. You don't like what they're doing. You pick them up and you take them over to the timeout chair. As they get bigger, does control work? No. So you have to pivot to influence. And when a child is little, you can't really influence them. You can influence them through prayer and love and 
tender touch and affection, but as they get older, you've really got to work on the relationship because all leadership is on a continuum from control to influence. And to control someone, do you need a relationship? To control someone, you don't. To influence someone, you do. And they need to know that you love and care about them and are not trying to do what's best for you, but trying to do what's best for them. That's the parenting job. So as your kids get older, it's more influence. Hey, how can I pray for you? What do you need from me? How can I bless you? Is there anything I can help with? Is there any burden I can lift? Is there any gift that I can give? It's influence. And then the whole prayer and goal is that they would invite you into their life and invite you into their home. And if they don't, you gotta ask yourself, have I potentially done something wrong that my own child doesn't enjoy me? And this is why we have so much dysfunction and brokenness. And what oftentimes happens is rather than obeying the word of God, what we say is number one, well, this is how our family does it. Well, if it's wrecked a family for generations, why not change that? And sometimes people be like, but that's not our culture. And they'll pull in their cultural orientation. It's like, this is before culture, this supersedes culture, this is transcultural, this is biblical. And so the law of priority, I know I'm belaboring the point, but like, so my oldest daughter, I'm just gonna verbal process, we don't put this one on the internet. So, um, so my oldest daughter, Ashley, when she was growing up, who was the biggest, most important first man in her life? Me. I really like that, by the way. Now, I'm not. I'm not. Her husband is. Her husband is. And imagine how horrible it would be if I kept applying pressure for her to decide between her dad and her husband. That puts my daughter in an impossible position. Instead, I want her to be married. I want her and her husband to be one. I want them to chase God's dream for their life. And I I wanna help and support their marriage because now their marriage is my priority. And ultimately, for those of you who are children, your adult children, you need to know that this can be a bit of an emotional process for your parents. But for parents, know this, if you don't come to reality, eventually you break the relationship with the child. That's the law of priority. And there's only three kinds of relationships. Healthy, unhealthy, no relationship. And if parents or extended family does not do healthy relationship, they put their kids in this lose-lose scenario. Well, do we have an unhealthy relationship or no relationship? So then what the kids do, they have a lot of boundaries trying to maintain or manage an unhealthy relationship until you violate those boundaries, it becomes so painful that they have no relationship. That is the law of priority. There is the law of pursuit. It says that he will hold fast or cleave to his wife. What this means is the energy goes toward the marriage. The time, the passion, the excitement, the enthusiasm goes toward the marriage. Previously it was, well, what does my family need? What is my family like? What is my, what is my family doing? Now it's like, I'm building a brand new family. And let me tell you this, the reason it says that it's a lot of work, that's what that word uh, cleave means in some translations. True or false, marriage is a lot of work. It is. We have this crazy culture and they're like, oh, we just fell in love and we just stayed in love. And I was like, you're crazy. That's not how this works. You put two sinners together, it's gonna be a little work to keep it together. It takes a lot of work because what it is, when the two become one, it's not which one, but a new one. It's not like the domineering personality gets to be the one who decides, well, I'm the one and you're gonna be like me. It's like, no, no, we're a new one. 
We got to figure out who we are together, how we do life together, how we love and serve one another. It's a lot of time and energy. And if your family doesn't allow the law of priority, then you don't have the energy to build a good marriage because all of your time and energy is getting drained by a dysfunctional broken family system. This leads to the law of partnership, says that the two will become one. And this little word for the original hearers would have been a word that they were familiar with because they said this word three times a day. Hear Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4, something called the Shema. Jesus said it three times a day. It's the same word here in Genesis. Hear Israel, the Lord our God, he is a God, he is one. And that word means multiple who are unified as one. It's a word that denotes the Trinity. And here it's used for marriage. A husband and a wife become one. So the best way to illustrate the Trinity is to have a good marriage. Okay, when my kids are growing up, they're like, dad, explain the Trinity. I was like, Three persons, but they're one. I was like, well, your mom and I, how many persons are there? There's two, but are we one? Oh yeah, you and mom are one. And so what oneness is, it's this constant pursuit of how to do life together. What this means is, let me make it super practical. And this is a totally offensive sermon and I know many of you are very frustrated, but I love you and I'm telling you, your way ain't gonna work because God only blesses his way and I want you to be blessed. But at the end of the day, this means you live in one city. This means you live in one house. This means you sleep in one bed. This means you have one bank account. This means you go to one church. This means you're under the authority of one word of God. This means that you do everything you can to put your life together as one. And the issue is that Grace and I do everything together. We make all our decisions together. We're totally overt. We have the same schedule. We, and we're just, we try to do everything together as one. And at the end of the day, the problem is not a strong personality, it's an independent personality. So people are like, well, you shouldn't have a strong personality. No, you can't. Let me ask you this, it's not a trick question. Am I a strong personality? <laughs> Occasionally. I mean, it's a glitch. It's not, you know, all the time. Sometimes I'm asleep. So, um, but if you've met Grace, is my wife Grace a strong personality? Yes. Oh, for sure. How do I know? She's still with me. That takes a strong personality. We raise five kids. If you've met them, strong personalities. And guess what? No problem, because we're not independent. As a family, we were strong together. As the kids launch their strong personalities, they marry their spouses and they use their strength together. When two strong people are unified, it's beautiful. When they're independent, they exhaust each other. It's just like tug of war, always just pulling against one another. And so the law of priority is you leave your mother and father. The law of pursuit is you put all your energy into your marriage. And the law of partnership is that you do life together and you make every effort to be one. And I'll, I'll tell you this guys, I believe in marriage. I just do. I believe that God made marriage and there's a 100% success rate for couples who obey God. I just, that's what I believe. I've been married 30 years and I, I'll tell you this. Our world doesn't know how to do relationship. It doesn't know how to do sex. It doesn't know how to do gender. It doesn't know how to do marriage. It doesn't know how to do family. It doesn't know how to do legacy. 
And we're not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, we'll be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Like, it's not working, we gotta go back to the word of God. And this leads to the law of purity. It says that they were naked without shame. And oftentimes when we hear of nudity and sex, there's shame involved for one of three reasons. Number one, we've sinned. You're like, I've done some stuff I regret. And let me say, that's my story. Before I met Grace, I was not a virgin. When I met Grace, I started sleeping with her. And then I became a Christian. I read the Bible and I realized that I should not be sleeping with her. So we stopped, met with our pastor. He taught us and coached us. And the Bible's pattern is chastity before marriage and fidelity in marriage. So if you've gotten it wrong, here's the good news. Jesus forgives and the Holy Spirit helps you make it right. And I'm happy to report this year, Grace and I will celebrate 30 years of faithful marriage. And so this is possible in God's will. In addition, some of the reason that we have shame with our nakedness is not sins that we have committed, but sins have been committed against us. We've been molested, we've been abused. And you probably need to meet with a Christian counselor who knows the scriptures and knows the social sciences and knows the Holy Spirit so that you can heal up and unburden and get to a healthy place. And I'm sorry if that's happened to you. And the third is sometimes it's just really bad Bible teaching in religious environments. You go to church and all they tell you is, here's all the things that the Bible forbids. They point out all the red lights and they don't tell you, well, it's a good thing. You know, I always, my joke is always, you know, grow up in the wrong church. They teach the, you know, kids in youth group, sex is dirty, nasty, vile, and wrong. So save it for the one you love. And they're like, and then they get married. We're like, I don't know why they're so confused. Well, we kind of set them up for failure. So what I always tell my kids is that passion and sex and pleasure is like a fire and it works great in a fireplace and it's a real problem elsewhere. The fireplace, the hearth for passion, sexual intimacy is the marriage. Let me just say, our whole world would be different if more people just did this simple thing. Just don't have sex until you're married. That would absolutely transform cultures. Just one thing. And again, we don't expect people who don't know God to behave this way, but as God's people, it should be our desire to behave this way. And let me say this, who made us? God. Who made us male and female? God. Who made marriage? God. And who brought us together to be naked without shame? God. And this was not like some big whoops. It's not like God made Adam and Eve, like, okay, you kids, meet, starving, go get a snack, I'll be back in a bit, okay, got my chili dog, I'm back. What the heck? What the, what the, what, what are you kids doing? I had no idea. No angels got involved. Nobody swooped down with a wing and got in the middle. Like what happened? Was God shocked? No, it, it was good. It was pure, it was right. So what you're gonna get for both of you who come back, you're gonna get in the rest of Genesis, we're gonna talk a lot about all kinds of sexuality, positive and negative. But I primarily wanna talk about the gift that God has given intimacy in a relationship. So as we look at this, this is the last perfect chapter in the Bible. We only made it two pages. <laughs> How many of you, you hear this and you're like, that sounds awesome. Animals that obey me, 
nakedness, fruit salad, musicals, and naps. What happened? Right? Like, I, I haven't had any of these things. I, I, you know what happened is, God was good and we were bad. God told us what to do and we didn't do it. God said, life, death. And we said, you know what? We choose death. And then we look at Adam and Eve and come back next week. We'll deal with this in Genesis three. We say, that was so stupid. How could they do that? And the question is, we're so stupid. How come we do that? Every day, God says, tree of life, tree of death. You're like, I'll take the death and I'll feed it to my kids. The question is why? Now, the good news is this. The creator knew that we could not fix the problem that we had made. So the creator in our creation, his name is Jesus Christ. And he lived a life without any sin. He was completely obedient in every single way. And then he died in our place for our sins so that we could be forgiven. You know what we need to be? Forgiven. And what he does then, he sends the Holy Spirit and he makes us a new creation in Christ. And then Jesus, after he died and rose and returned to heaven, not only did God prepare a place, he's preparing another place right now. And just as he brought it for our parents, he's going to bring it for us. And the Bible says the day is coming when the seen and the unseen come together with the second coming of Jesus Christ that the dead are rise, that the curse is lifted and that God returns to his original divine design plan of Genesis one and two. We'll be in his presence, we'll be his people, we'll sing his praises, we'll create, we'll enjoy and we'll live life as God fully intended. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you want to be a part of getting more Bible teaching out across the world, visit realfaith.com slash donate. And for more content like this, visit realfaith.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, it's all about Jesus.